All right, as we take this up, that is a lengthy section of Scripture, and I'm going to be brushing on a couple of issues. Some of these issues, I would really prefer to have hours and hours to flesh out. But I don't think you're going to grant that to me today. So what we're going to do, so I'm going to try to be as clear and as faithful as possible. And if thoughts and questions come up in your mind, it'd be, I, I would love to address and expand and impress more some of these elements. But I want to uh, look and really grasp what's going on in this passage. We've begun to see how when, when Jesus ascended, he had given that clear instruction to his apostles. That they were to take that gospel and they were to make disciples of all nations. We know that when they received power from on high, they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. As we reach chapter 10, they have been his witnesses in Jerusalem. They have been his witnesses in Judea. They have been his witnesses in Samaria. Now, grant you, this is still Judea. But nonetheless, it is someone who's not native to that region. It is the first occasion where there is an absolute distinctive Gentile who God brings under the gospel of grace in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he comes to recognize as that verse that I read, the very last verse, he is Lord of all. Now, what I want us to get is not miss in this. Acts is a book of transition. So there's a few things that we, we can't mistake as we go through there. For example, we know that the apostles themselves were already saved, already believers, already disciples, already born again, so to speak. But nonetheless, on the day of Pentecost, the spirit was poured out on them. Right? So they were believers, but they received later. We also saw as part of the transition there in Samaria, those believers received the gospel and were baptized. But then in the providence of God, they sent for Peter and John who came down there. And at their prayer and laying on of hands, the Samaritans also received the spirit. And so what we began to see is not only in the early days of the church were many miracles being done by the hands of the apostles. And was God pleased that through the laying on of the hands of the apostles to give the spirit. Remember, Simon the magician wanted a little piece of that action. And he said, your heart is not in the right place. It's not about you. It's not for you. But with each step of it, the apostles were there to recognize the great outpouring of, of the power of God, bringing salvation in the work of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The apostles went down and could go back and attest the very same grace that was afforded us was given to the Samaritans. That same Transition is taking place, which we'll look at next week. The very same spirit in this very same grace is going to be given to Gentiles. Because there is no difference. Salvation is all of God, all of grace, through Christ alone. Amen? And, and so, so what we do see is this. When you come to this individual, Cornelius, he is a God-fearing man. Now, it does not use a common term in here that, that sometimes the scriptures use three times of a proselyte. 
You know, a proselyte oftentimes might be someone who was from a, a Gentile background, but they had joined themselves to the children of Israel. There were such sojourners throughout the history of Israel, and the way they would oft do that is they would go through a system of necessary rituals, which indeed included uncomfortably circumcision. It does not appear that necessarily any of those things had taken place in the life of this individual. And I want us to, first of all, the first thing we're going to see is Cornelius and his character. And I want to be very cautious about this because part of our ordinary tendency is to look at Cornelius's character and say this, Cornelius is great. Everyone should be like Cornelius. You be like Cornelius, I'll be like Cornelius. And we motivate each other. But that's not ultimately what's being laid out here. And we've got to be cautious. We're so ready to elevate men, put them on pedestals, and make them our heroes. Indeed, we oft refer to uh, Hebrews chapter 11 as what? It's often called the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith, the Hall of the Great Christian Fathers. But one, one of the rich things that we often remind ourselves as it goes through and it mentions Abraham and it mentions Moses and then it goes on Gideon, Samson, Jephthah and all of their victories closing, closing the mouths of lions. The whole point is you're not supposed to, I'm going to encourage you this, don't be like Samson, right? No, no, no. But the one thing, the names change throughout the chapter, but one thing that continues as a resounding repetition is, by faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Abel offered a better say. By faith. The grounds of it was faith. And it breaks my heart when people walk away from that chapter and say, wow, Gideon. No, no, no. Wow, the faith that God gives that transforms an individual, that enables them to uh, uh, encounter some circumstance, some event, and prevail by God's power and grace. In the end, with each one, we should be really, instead of saying Gideon is great, Abraham is great, we should be saying what? God is great. Great is the God of our faith. Amen. And, and I don't want us to miss that. Now, these things are noble and admirable. And they indeed indicate that he had a sense. God had been pleased to show him that whatever his background, which surely was idolatrous and pagan, that those things were empty. Those things were vain. And in the context of where he lived, he was within reasonable proximity to journey to Jerusalem. He was in a place where there would have been synagogues. He was exposed to the God who has revealed himself in the history of Israel. The God who has revealed himself in the law. The God who has revealed himself in the word. And it seems very clear that God had been pleased to make known to him, I am God. And there is no other. There is no God that can compare to me. Indeed, there is no rock besides me. He seems to have come to know that because the scriptures lay him out in this way. And we want, I want us to see the, the character of Cornelius. It says in verse 2 and, and 3. A devout man who feared God. 
Now, it's interesting because those things ought really go together, shouldn't they? If you fear God, you're going to be devout. But part of it is because the phrase God-fearer simply was a phrase that would indicate this is someone who has come to know and acknowledge he is God. It speaks of a reverence, it speaks of a respect, it speaks of an obedience. And the term there, devout, references that he is a pious individual. And it's not just uh, the sense that sometimes people get is that is something, that is a work of God internally. And indeed it is. God's grace does a powerful work on us internally, right? We no longer love ourselves and the things of this world. We now love God above all else. A powerful work internally. Devotion, love, respect, admiration. All of that is worked internally. But if it has been worked internally, does it stay there? In the secret places. Hidden within. So that no one would know. Unless they happen to peek in our window and catch us praying. Is that how it works? No, we see that the grace, we don't do it to be seen or praised by man. But we, as Jesus says, you do your good deeds. You let your light shine before men that they will see your good deeds. And what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. It says of this man, he didn't just have some internal spoken secret commitment, but it, it's the reality of the full-orbed grace of God that brings about a new man and that brings about a new life. It says it like this. He, he, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, and he gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God continually. And that's just a wonderful testimony. So every facet of his life, the idea of prayed to God continually, then it will say at about the ninth hour, that's three o'clock. His commitment was such without, without a deep knowledge that he, he himself was keeping the Jewish patterns of prayer, that they would pray three times a day at sunrise, at sunset, and at three o'clock. And he was keeping those patterns because he understood this is the true God. And he was praying continually. It, it, it was something that was flowing from, again, not, not the kind of thing that says, okay, I'm supposed to pray every day. Or, oh no, it's three o'clock, I've got to pray again. But the sense of it, it by, by starting with that he was devout and ending with praying continually, this is the overflow of who he really is. Again, it, there's a sense in which the song that we sang. I am who you say I am. That's, the, that's something we ought to grasp. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. I was all of these things. Dead in trespasses and sin. A slave to sin. Weak, helpless, inadequate, unable. But who I am now is different. You know, and, and that recognition. So it's not, if you just do these things, then you will become a Christian. No, 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 no. If you just do these things, then you will earn God's favor. That's not how it works. Our favor with God comes from a single source of origin. What is that source? You know it, right? 
Jesus Christ. God himself has provided that perfect sacrifice. That one who would come. And he is our righteousness. He is our wisdom. Amen? And, and in our union with him. We know that we are accepted of God in the beloved. But it's not just that we are accepted. We are united to him. We are a new workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We were dead. We have now been made alive in Christ Jesus. It's a whole new thing. And that new thing isn't the same as it always was. It's changed and it's not changed just because it's checking a list of boxes. I got to change this and I got to change that. There is that desire. Sure, that's also there where we see failings and stumblings in our life. God, I need, I need to change this. Please help me, convict me, strengthen me. I want to resist these things because we're still far from perfect, aren't we? But we're not what we were. As the saying goes, we are not now what we once were. But we are not yet what we will be. When we see him, we will be like him. But right now, between now and then, Corinthians tells us we are being transformed from degree to degree into the image of the Son. And what I want us to see when we, when we take this up, it says good things about him. Acts chapter 10, 22, it says this, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. I mean, he has a good reputation. Everyone who seems to have anything to say about him has good things to say. But I want us to, to, to think about this, and that, and that to some degree should be the reality. We remember James is trying to deal with some people who are acting hypocritically, uh, mistreating or, or treating less valuable the poor and, and showing great esteem and goodness to the rich. You remember in James? And what does he tell people in James 2.18 and following? Some say, or you will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, don't ever, let's never miss that. He's not simply saying, I will show you my works. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. Because the grace that God gives that is saving faith is a laboring faith, right? And we know that. And we don't want to miss that. Remember, it says this in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but what? Faith working through love. Amen? Now, we've got to make sure that we don't miss. We've got, we've got some people who's, who... Their hearts are in the right place of sincerity. They, want, they say, we're saved by faith. We're saved by believing. And that is absolutely right. But sometimes they get so caught up in that truth that they say, so we don't ever have to do anything. We don't, you know, some will go so far as to say, you don't have to repent. You don't have to serve the Lord. You don't, no, that's not true. Real faith when you know, understand who God is and his holiness and the conviction that is brought for, upon us because the Holy Spirit, what? Convicts the world 
of sin, righteousness, and judgment. When we come to recognize that, we are brought by the Spirit to confess our sin and receive that wonderful forgiveness of our sin. And, and all of that is there. But then you got people on the other side who emphasize works a little bit too much, don't they? Actually, they make works part of the salvation. You're saved not by faith, but by faith plus or faith and worse than that, some of them say, well, yeah, don't have a lot of faith, but I'm going to make up for it with works. That's not going to happen. You know, faith and works are essentially like those two sides of the coin. You got to have both of them. They're like heat and light. They come together. They're indivisible. And by messing that up, we mess a whole lot up. But understanding this, we already remember this faith is not of ourselves, it's not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So faith isn't a, a, a work, it's not of us, it's a grace-given gift of God. And that gift that God gives us, it's a living gift. It's a works-producing gift. And so when, I want, when we talk about character here, I'm going to restate our first focus point this morning, that it is an endowed and enabled character that we see in him. So it's not Cornelius for the sake of it. It is endowed and enabled. And so we say, oh God, I have the same God. The same grace can work these things in me that I might be pious, that I might be devout. So we look not to Cornelius, which I always want to remind people. We don't look to Cornelius, right? We look ultimately what? Beyond that. But it's good to have visible examples. We don't visibly see Cornelius, but we look to a, a various leaders and men to see the, the outcome of their faith. But in the end, the outcome of their faith does it lead to their praise or does it lead to God's praise? Well, it should. But we live in a world where I ask you, does it always lead to God's praise? No, you might show up. You might go into a bookstore somewhere, someday, sometime. A Christian bookstore. And maybe they're going to put big face of somebody right on the book cover. Right? You know? Showing the best side of that face. Good profile. You know? And, and promoting those things. And, and it happens all along where, where pretty soon uh, ministries are named after men. Not all of them have the wrong motives. But, you know, I'm a part of so-and-so ministry and so-and-so ministry. And it, and it slowly becomes like this. And people will say, uh, what church do you go to? Well, I, I go to pastor so-and-so's church. I go to his church. What? No, no, no. Who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. You know, I, I participate in, in, in this body, in this flock, in this membership. But God help us to not fix our eyes upon men. Because I'll tell you, this passage does not mention to us any of Cornelius' failings, shortcomings, mistakes, or weaknesses. I do not think I will be presumptuous to say he had them. <laughs> he had feelings. He had, but his general character worked by the grace of God was so good. Remember what it says in the scriptures. I'm just, I want, don't want us to miss this. Psalm 53, 
says this, really building on some of what we read in Psalm 33 in the opening, if you were listening. God, Psalm 53, verse 2 to 4. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. All right? And so he looks down, and what does he see? It says, they have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You've probably heard that somewhere before, if you've ever read Romans 3. But this is what God looks down. So I think what sometimes can mess up our minds is we think God looked down from heaven. Wow, Cornelius is devout. Look at that. I found him. I found the rare jewel of great price. Ooh, he prays continually. Amazing. I'm so thankful. Ooh, is that what's happening? See, our tendency can be to think that because when we read through, that's how the scripture declares him. And indeed, he was devout and he was pious. But if God looked down on men left to their themselves, left to their own hearts and left to their own minds, there's not going to be a one. And so when we see this, and when we see these things in Cornelius, we should say, oh, what a blessed recipient of the gracious work of God in his life. Yes, he has character, but it is an endowed and enabled character given by God. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 2, verse 11 and following. And this is an interesting thing as he's scolding through Jeremiah the children of Israel, who themselves, what they had done is they had the true God, the powerful God who had given them victories. And then what did they do? They forsook him. And they followed what is nothing made with man's hands, the figment of men's imaginations. And it says this, verse 11 of chapter 2 of Jeremiah, has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are not gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, utterly desolate. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns that are broken and can hold no water. So, what, but what I want you to note, note in that is, do the nations change their gods? Generally, they don't. But the children of Israel, who are the only ones who shouldn't, did change their God. But someone want, might want to run forward. Wait a second. Cornelius changed his God. He did it. All hail Cornelius. Right? Wrong. If one changed his God. It's not native to him. People don't do it. If they change their way. It's not native to them. They don't do it. You know. It, it's such a powerful thing when we hear the way the scriptures unfold it. Listen as I read Psalm 102, verse 18 and following. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may be to the praise of the Lord. He looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked down to, at the earth. 
to hear the groan of prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. God looks down and what does he see? We are children of wrath like the rest. We are prisoners doomed to die. Romans 6 calls us what? Captives, slaves to sin. And yet God in his mercy is pleased to set us free. Uh, I love the way uh, that it says it. I guess really when he says these words, it captivates the natural condition of man. In Romans 7, 18, he says, for nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. Isn't it right? Nothing good. For I have the desire to do what is right. But not the ability to carry it out. That's a hopeless state. That's the natural state. But then what does grace do? Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God. I never want us to miss those wonderful little introductory words. But thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin. Have become obedient from the heart. That's different language than we would expect. We would expect you were disobedient. Thank you for becoming obedient. I mean, wouldn't that seem more natural? And you were doing wrong. Thank you for doing right. That makes more sense. Humanly. But spiritually, with regard to our condition, apart from faith, you cannot please God. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we find ourselves continually unable to change. Unable to make progress. One step forward, two steps back. And we think, how am I going to change? And the answer is, you and I can't. But the grace of God can change any one of us. That's why he says, thanks be to God. That you have become obedient from the heart. Which means when we, if ever we do something and someone says, brother, sister, that was wonderful. That was blessed. I'm so encouraged. You're, what should you be saying? Thanks be to God. All praise be to God. You know, apart from him. Yeah, if you knew me, what I was. And even what people knew that I was, wasn't all that I was. I was worse than they could see. <laughs> but when God revealed that to me, I was thankful nobody could see what goes on in there. But he revealed to me that he saw it. And he worked a powerful change. And I'm not anymore who I once was. Thanks be to God. That's why we love those words as that Paul says in Philippians 2. 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as always, you obeyed me. So now, not only in my presence, much more in my absence, he calls them to what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he calls them. It's a call to action. Work it out. Wait. Now, work out your salvation is clearly different than work for your salvation. Let us never confuse those two things. You can't work for your salvation. But those who are saved... By grace they work it out. But then we remember, and, and I don't ever want us to miss, what is that next verse? Right there in Philippians 2, 13. For it is God 
who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that you had the desire to do good. Where did that come from? That you had then the ability to carry it out. Where did that come from? So maybe you and I might say all praise and glory be due. God. So Cornelius had character, but it was an endowed and enabled character. The product of the grace of God. And that same grace is the grace that is given to all of us in Christ Jesus. I love how uh, uh, Peter writes in his epistle. To the, he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. <laughs> because we might start to think, well, those apostles, they were... Uh, they had... A peculiar and extraordinary role in the early church. But with regard to the salvation. No different than ours. With regard to imperfections. No different than ours. Remember Peter backed away from eating with the Gentiles as he should have. The moment some Jews came down. He misled Barnabas in, in the midst of those things. Men even apostles. Were not infallible. You know. Someone might want to declare Peter. To be the first pope. You know. Uh, they're going to they're gonna be suffering tremendously. In so many ways. Because one of the things we saw. In 1 Corinthians this morning. Is the fact that he was a married man. Which is a little rarer. <laughs> in the, and further than that. He was a fallible man. Right. Because even as he comes down to Cornelius here, and I, I do love it. People might want to lift up Cornelius. Cornelius wasn't ready to lift up himself, but Peter shows up and he's ready to lift up Peter, isn't he? But what does it say as he comes into the pre presence and he falls down to worship him? Chapter 10, verse 25 and 26. But Peter lifted him up and said what? Stand up. I too I'm just a man. And I'll tell you that. Let us never mistake that. Anyone who stands to teach and preach. Anyone. I too am just a man. There's days that I'm going to be weary. And possibly as a result of that unkind. Even I'm being a little gracious towards myself. I might be unkind on days I'm not weary. Sorry. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, in other words, I'll even try to semi-excuse my stumblings. Well, there's a reason why. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I am not perfect. You are not perfect. And we, and we know that. We walk together. We bear one another's burden. We, we try to be iron sharpening iron. We try to provoke one another to love and good works. Remember, it isn't men that we lift up. We look to Christ who is seated at the right hand. He's the one who did all things well. He's the one who was perfect and pleasing. And so whenever so, someone begins to praise you. Earnestly try to say this. Thanks be to God. And oh how short I am yet of my Savior. Amen. All right. The clock keeps ticking. So let's move on to the second thing that I want us to consider this morning as this is unfolding in this passage we see not only Cornelius but God is at work here 
uh, he's, he's going to bring about the salvation of Cornelius. It's important to know this. He was a God-fearer coming from the days prior to Christ. But the scriptures are very clear. There is salvation in no other name. All salvation that ever takes place is in Christ Jesus, correct? And so it was in the good pleasure of God that those he had been pleased to make himself known to, he was making his son known to. And so he sends an angel to Cornelius to speak with him, doesn't he? Now, I want you to be a, a little bit aware of this. Or more than a little bit aware of this. Uh, this experience for Cornelius was not a joyful event. It says that when this angel appeared to him, that he stared at him in terror. I mean, it was, it was shocking and unnerving. More than that, what I really want us to focus on in the sadly brief time that we have is the communication we looked at character now we're looking at communication and i want us to see that the communication that is given by angels was limited and the communication given by visions less than lucid okay i want us to see those things because when the angel comes i ask you this does the angel know jesus is the son of god does he know jesus died was buried and rose again on the third day. Does he know that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming again to judge the living and the dead? Does he know this? Why didn't he just say it? Why did it's not his place? Which, which is what I want us to, to be really careful about. You might meet someone somewhere someday who's gonna say. An angel came and spoke to me. And your first response should be, so what? Well, graciously. So what? You know? Because the, the fact is, yeah, so what? So what? Because God spoke to me. And how much did the angel say? Because God's told me a whole lot. So I'm gonna, this is a living word, a reliable word, a more sure word. So why are you getting all excited about the fact that an angel spoke to you? That's no big deal. When the angel spoke to this man, did he now know Jesus? And the most important thing, post-resurrection ascension for mankind is to what? No, Jesus, these angels are not the messengers that it's given to. All he tells them is what? Go to this house, in this place, call for this man, and listen to what he says. That's it. How much new doctrine did the angel introduce? How much new practice for how the church should function did the angel introduce? Nothing! That is not the work of angels. That is not their place. And so that's one of the ways that we can understand when error is taking place. In Galatians chapter 1, having delivered the gospel to the Galatians, Paul says this in verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should speak or preach to you a gospel contrary than the one that we did. 
let him be accursed. In other words, changes in the message, that angel may seem to be from heaven, but that's an accursed angel. Now, how many of you want to listen to accursed angels? I wouldn't think so. Further, 1 John reminds us of this. And we don't mistake this in chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So a false prophet who says he's, he's got a message from a spirit. How do you test that guy? Well, does what he say measure up to the faith once for all that God has revealed? If it leads a different direction, no good. I mean, I remember the scriptures are so strong that it says that if, if a prophet... Even if his prophecy comes true, a tremendous sign takes place. He says it, and it happens. But he tells you to follow other gods. Don't listen to him. Because the Lord your God is testing you to see whether or not you will obey him. So, the thing, we get all caught up in, in, the, in the amazing seeming things. You know, uh, if someone was to say, look... If you look up in the sky tonight, you're going to see three falling stars. And then if you do look up and you see three falling stars, does that mean you should do everything else that guy tells you? No. You know what it means? It means you saw three falling stars. Doesn't mean anything else else than that. What God would have us do, he reveals. And so, again... I want us to not only notice that Philip was in Samaria and, and an angel spoke to him as well and told him what? Get down there on the road that goes from Jerusalem so that he could meet what? The Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that? Now, Philip, why didn't he have this conversation? I'm weary. That's a long way. You can get there faster. Right? But the angel did not go. The angel did not meet the Ethiopian eunuch reading the book of Isaiah. The angel did not open up to him Christ beginning in that passage. Did he? No. Because that is not entrusted to them. The word is entrusted to us. Um, yes. Uh, remember Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Second Corinthians warns us about these things. Even more scary, First Timothy 4, when it says, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, which we look around and we see it, don't we? <laughs> People departing from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirit. And it even goes on to say, the teachings of demons. You know, as we saw recently in the study of Jude, relying on dreams, going on and on about visions. Can we hear the word of the Lord? Can we hear God's word? Because it doesn't change. And so the, what Cornelius only told him very specifically certain things. Even then angels were not delivering messages to Peter. Peter, where did he receive his gospel from? Christ. Even Paul, a later apostle that was added, he would say, where did he receive his gospel from? Not from men, but he received it from Christ. 
There is one source of truth, one source of the gospel, and it comes to us through these men. Our time is running out. We're going to have to pick up next week, but I just want to draw your attention to one more part in this as we run out of time for today. Acts chapter 10, verse 10 and 11. Because there's something in here I know likey. I, I just feel like the translators missed it and it breaks my heart. It says this in verse 10. And he became hungry. This is Peter. He went up to, to the roof of the house to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, the ESV says, he fell into a trance. Is that? What, what is that? Now, I just want you to note this. Luke is the only one who seemingly ever uses this phrase. And it's here, and it's also in chapter 11 when he's recounting this experience. But this particular word, let me show you two places briefly where the same word is used. And ain't no trance going on. Okay? Just one in limited time. Luke chapter 5, verse 26. Jesus has healed a paralytic man. Remember? He says, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And, it said, and, and the man, he said, rise up and walk, take your mat. The man rose up and walked. And it says in Luke chapter 5, verse 26, and amazement seized them all. That word amazement seized them is the same word. Now I ask you this, when that man stood up, healed, did everyone there fall into a trance? No, that would be weird. There's no, there's no need for that. L look with me also at a second one. Because this word isn't used that frequently without variation. Now, this is um, the Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of Jesus, uh, uh, of James and Salome, came to the tomb. Mark 16, 8. Remember, they came to the tomb. The angels appeared to them. It says Mark 16, 8. They went out. And fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment seized them. I ask you this. Did they run out of the tomb and fall into a trance? No. What it's saying is, astonishment seized them. So I will proffer this as a valid and what I believe a more likely translation in this passage. That it ought to simply say that as he was waiting for his food, he became astonished when he saw a sheet descending out of heaven down from its four corners. That's the real rendering of those words. Now, is it a vision? Yes. Did he have to be in a trance? No, that's a very, very weird use of that word. He was absolutely, he became astonished. And it's actually not he fell. He became astonished when he saw the sheep come down. With all these animals on it. Oh. So. We're going to take this up next week. Boy. I was telling my wife this morning. I think that uh, we have 
way too much for the time allotted to us. But I just want to focus in on, on this by way of repetition before we get out of here today. Uh, we see that God is continuing that process of, of building his church. It's going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth. We've seen the Jews saved. We've seen the Samaritans saved. And, and God is now bringing into the church also the Gentiles. He's bringing them in with equal position, equal standing. That mystery that was kept hidden for generations now being revealed to the saints is, is going to be unfolding right here. And in the midst of that, there is statements here that speak of Cornelius's character. But we rejoice today in the recognition that that character is endowed by God and enabled by his spirit. Right? We are what we are by the grace of God. Paul says, I worked harder than all the rest. Nevertheless, not I, but the grace of God that is in me. As we moved on forward, we, they began to see uh, various visions, angelic communication. But we remembered this, that that communication was limited and even less than lucid, we'll look at next week a little bit. After seeing that vision three times, it says, Peter was greatly perplexed, wondering, what does this mean? All right? So that, wa that wasn't the clarity. I wish everybody who ever had a dream or vision would recognize that did not give them all the answers. <laughs> That's not the solution. That's not the direction. He ended up, understanding that vision in accordance with the word of God's promise to include the Gentiles in his people. God's word is what always gives us the clear, the sure, the believable truth. So character is endowed and enabled. Communication outside of the clear word of God is limited and less than lucid. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thanking you so much for the time that we spent. Even so thankful that as we look at this passage, that as it, as it builds forward to chapter 36, it's just continuing to build towards the primacy and centrality of Christ. Lord, we thank you that for these, uh, these men, the early apostles, for even the God-fearers who were spread abroad, that you were pleased to send your men. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And we know that they will not call out upon you unless they hear. And they will not hear unless someone is sent. Lord, what an astounding thing that you have entrusted this privilege and duty. Not to angels, but to mere men such as us. Lord, and we do look at one another and we recognize and we declare we too are just men. But then we say, and we are not great, but absolutely great and glorious is our God. And in all of the things of, uh, in ourselves and in this world, there is confusion and instability. But with you, there is a surety and an absolutely blessed assurance. And we rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.